really what I want to highlight from this is the honour that's shown and the honour that's shammed probably is the best way to put it. Um, bit, of a, bit of an update for those of you that have been here since the beginning of the year. Earlier this year, I had a job that I lasted two weeks before both my employer and myself have gone, this isn't working. And why did that happen? I had a contract with that employer. It went for, I think the contract from memory was about 13 pages. It was a very detailed contract of employment. Um, like most people, I went straight to the bit that talked about the dollars. But it was not the contract that was the problem. It was the unwritten stuff that was the problem. It was the bits, the strings that were attached to that contract. Their expectations of me and my expectations of them. I'm now in, a, in a, another job. I've been there for five weeks. And I think for the first three and a half weeks, it was like, I don't think I can do this. Anybody ever been in a new job where that's been, you have to sit there and just go, I just feel totally incompetent. That was me pretty much every day. Now it's only every, every second day. Um, it's an incredibly bureaucratic and process and procedure um, organisation. But they employed me knowing full well what they got. Um, very surprisingly, before I started with them, they got me to do a psychometric test. Um, anybody here ever had to do a psychometric test for a job? Yeah, and you sit there. And the really weird thing was it was a test that I'd actually been trained in how to facilitate. So I knew what it was all about. But I still answered it very honestly and everything else. But I was having a chat with my boss last week and said... No, in case you haven't picked up, I'm this, 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 and this. And she goes, yeah, we saw that in your report. And I'm like, then why did you employ me? And they're going, because that's actually what we're looking for. We're looking for somebody who's just going to shake things up a little bit. That wasn't written anywhere in my contract of employment with my new employer. But it, that was their expectations. I could have tried to fit their mould... but I would have actually not been doing the reason they got me. Now, this sort of spoken versus unspoken, written versus unwritten. Um, no. What impacts our behaviour more? It's really the unwritten, the unspoken, that impacts how we behave and it might not be a work situation it can be in our relationships with other people our relationships with family members no how much of it is the spoken stuff and how much of it is just the underlying undercurrent we had a situation in my family uh, recently when was it Saturday last week week before, um, where we went down to uh, Arthur's seat down on the Mornington Peninsula to scatter my mum's ashes. So 
She's now reunited with Dad because that's where his ashes are scattered as well. Um, but my family is weird. <laughs> For those of you that look at me and go, you're an odd creature, Mr Kavanagh. Uh, I'm the normal one in my family. Um, we're all very similar. My younger brother, who's 13 years younger than me, is even more like us now because he had to get glasses in this last week. So he now really looks like a cabiner. But we're all the same. We're all big. We're all loud. But I describe us like the four strings of a bass guitar. No, you sort of... You don't play chords on a bass. It's just each individual string and each plays separately and you make your individual noises and... Um, that's what we're like. Um, we're an unusual family. It's the unspoken stuff. And while mum was alive, it was mum that sort of kept us together. But now that mum's gone, and I had this conversation with my eldest sister, I was like, well, what's going to keep us together now? No, we, we need to speak the unspoken. We need to sort of write the unwritten, if you like. But it's like that with all of, for all of us with relationships. It could be with our partners could be with our kids. No, we expect, you know, we expect people to behave the way we expect them to behave and when they don't, it's like a, what's going on here? I think it actually goes one step further. It's how we relate to the church. It's also how we relate to God. How often in our relationship with God do we place an expectation on God to behave in a certain way? No. We pay our tithes. We, do, we give our offerings. And so the deal there is, okay, God, I'm giving you that. You need to now bless my finances. So when, no, if, if you're like me, you're out of work for five months. It's like, well, what's the deal, God? I'm still tithing. Come on. <laughs> what are you doing? You're not living up to your part of the bargain. I'm doing my bit. No, this is pretty much the story of the book of Job. It's the story of Abram, you know, Caleb last week talked about the fact that, you know, 25 years, here's your promise, you're going to be a great nation, you're going to have lots and lots of children. 25 years later, he finally starts to see that promise outworked. How many of us would be prepared to wait 25 years for God to follow through on his part of the bargain? I reckon 25 years, I'd probably be a little bit shaky. No, let's be honest, I'd probably be away. But this is the faith part of Abram's story. The fact that he stuck it out. He made some mistakes along the way, but he stuck it out and made sure that he kept pursuing God and stayed in relationship with him, despite the fact that to all appearances... God was not following through on his part of the bargain.
So we've had three tests already, the detachment test, the belief test and the wall test. And so I want to have a look at that. The thing that happens in our passage today is that Abraham recognises that trusting in God has no strings attached. See, trust in God isn't about negotiating with God. I've been a Christian for over 50 years. I think I've learnt my lesson that negotiating with God is one of the dumbest things you can do. It's not like you've got any negotiating chips you can play with that he's unaware of. Hey, I'm going to sneak up and I'm going to give him this and it's like, hey, he's not going to expect that. He knows what we're doing. It's not like there's not an empower imbalance either. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to bully God into giving, him, giving me my way. Yeah, that probably does not, you know. There's only one thing I reckon that we can do that's dumber with than trying to negotiate with God. That's trying to hide from him. Like Adam did. I'm just going to hide from God. Really? You don't think he knows? Caleb shared with us this diagram last week about, no, we have a life-changing awareness of God. Uh, We start learning about him. We start serving him. We hit a wall. (laughs) The other side of that wall is that journey inward. I'm going to build on that a little bit. Caleb last week referenced St John of the Cross from the 1500s. I'm going to go one better. I'm going to go back to a gentleman by the name of Bernard of Clairvaux, um, who was born in 1090 uh, and died in about 1156. Um, he, an amazing man. Um, but he wrote a book called On the Love of God. And in that book, he talks about there being four levels of the love of God. Level one is the love of self for self's sake, and I'll unpack these a little bit in a minute. Level two is the love of God for self's sake. He didn't talk about it, but I would, he, he sort of hints at it. In between level two and level three is the wall that Caleb talked about last week. Level three is the love of God for God's sake. Level four his love of self for God's sake. Let me read you some of the things that Bernard wrote about each of these things. First of all, he talks about why God should be loved. And he says, No one could be more justly loved than God. No one deserves our love more. Some may question if God deserves our love or if they might have something to gain by loving him. The answer to both questions is yes. But I find no other worthy reason for loving him except himself. He then goes on to say, love is a natural affection. This is where he's talking about love of self. Love is a natural affection, but human nature is weak and therefore compelled to love itself and serve itself first. 
If this love of ourselves becomes too lavish, it will overflow its natural boundaries through excessive love of pleasure. This love of self is held in check by the command to love our neighbour. So loving ourselves and loving our neighbour is held in tension and that sort of moderates our behaviour. In order to love our neighbour, we must see that God is the cause of our love. God must be loved first in order that we love our neighbour in God. He then goes to talk about the love of God for self's sake. God blesses us with his protection. When we live free from trouble, we're happy. But in our pride, we may conclude that we are responsible for our security. That seems to be, the sound seems to be ringing a bit. Joel? Then when we suffer some calamity, some storm in our lives, we turn to God and ask his help, calling on, upon him in times of trouble. This is how we who only love ourselves first begin to love God. We will begin to love God even if it is for our own sake. We love God because we've learned that we can do all things through him and without him we can do nothing. We work out that it's to our benefit to love God. It's still about self. It's still about me, me, me. It's all about what can I get out of this. Then he goes to talk about the, the third degree. If trials and tribulation continue to come upon us, Every time God brings us through, even if our hearts were made of stone, we will begin to be softened because of the grace of the rescuer. We begin to love God not merely for our own sakes, but for himself. In order to arrive at this, we must continually go to God with our needs and pray. In those prayers, the grace of God is tasted, and by frequent tasting, it is proved to us how sweet the Lord is. When we begin to feel this, it will not be hard to fulfil the second commandment, to love our neighbour. This love is pure because it is disinterested. We love because we are loved, not because of what we, get out of, not we can get out of it. Give praise to the Lord for he is good, not because he is good to me, but because he is good. We truly love God for God's sake and not for our own. And then the fourth level he talks about, we lose ourselves as though we did not exist, utterly unconscious of ourselves and emptied of ourselves. During those moments, we'll be of one mind with God and our will in one accord with God. The prayer, thy will be done, will be our prayer and our delight. This perfect love of God with our heart, soul, mind and strength will not happen until we are no longer compelled to think about ourselves and attend to the body's immediate needs. It's not, assa- it's not attained by our own efforts. That wall is our unwritten contract with God. It's that wall that's the unspoken bit of our relationship with him. Part of our deal that we make with God is that there won't be a wall, or if it's a wall, it's only a low wall, and we can just sort of step over it. That we won't have trials that seem insurmountable. 
Let's have a look at this in the life of Abram. The scene gets set. Oh, hang on. There we go. The context. When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he went off and he rescued him. I just want you to stop and think about this for a moment. Okay, Abram had 318 trained men in his household that had been born in his household. Okay, there were 318 young men in Abram's service. That's a lot of people that have been born in his household. Imagine how big Abram's group would have been. That he was able to go, okay, we've got 318 people that have been born here. Let's go. Let's chase these men. He must have had a massive, I mean, that's a small country town. But he pursued Kedalamar and chased him and rescued Lot. That's a whole other that's a whole other test. I was tossing up whether to do that test or this test, and it was like, oh no, this one's this one's simpler. <laughs> the test of family is another one. Then he comes back and they meet in the valley and the king of Sodom comes out. So he's sitting there and this is something to keep in the back of your mind. The king of Sodom, while everything's going on with Melchizedek, is standing there watching. He is seeing what's going on. He's reading the scene. Now, thing to remember... We hear the word king and we think of people that are like massive rulers over large areas. Kings at this stage of the Bible are kings over cities. He's the king of Sodom. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, the the king of one city. We'd probably call them a mayor. (laughs) Chief counsellor. It's not like they were kings over massive territories. So, the king of Sodom. Then we see honour shown. Melchizedek, the king of Salem and priest of God Most High, bought Abram some bread and wine. I could have tied in with that and had communion in this, but we won't. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Why? That's a very expensive bread and wine meal. Why did Abram give 10% of everything that he'd captured to Melchizedek? Melchizedek had done nothing in terms of winning the victory. 
He wasn't part of the alliance. He wasn't part of Abram's allies. He just came out after the event and said, here's some bread and some wine and you know, be blessed and bless God. That's it. So why, why did Abram honour him? Abram honoured Melchizedek, not because of what Melchizedek had done, but he honoured Melchizedek because of who he was and who he represented. He honoured Melchizedek because Melchizedek was a priest of God most high. He honoured him because of his position. He honoured him because of the relationship that Melchizedek had with God. It's really weird because there's more about Melchizedek in the New Testament than there is in this passage. I mean, you get two verses, three verses about Melchizedek here. He's mentioned again in Psalm 110. And then there's a whole chapter about Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. We're not going to go there because it's not relevant to the, the point that I'm making today. But I encourage you to read it. Have, have, a, have a look at what's said about Melchizedek in Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7. And the writer of Hebrews just acknowledges that Abram blessed him with 10% simply because of who he was. No strings attached. No, no, you've done this for me, so I've got an obligation to do this for you. It was just, he honoured him. Remember, King of Sodom's watching all this going on. He's seeing the honour being given and being received. So what does he do? Well, I could do that. So the king of Sodom goes, give back my people. No, they're my people. I'd, I'd like them back. Um, keep for yourself all the goods that you've recovered. But Abram's a cluey character and he recognises that in that statement there's strings attached. There's a hook. There's something in it for the king of Sodom. And he goes, no mate. This is the Kavanaugh Australian translation. No mate. Not going to get caught up in your games. I don't want you down the track saying, hey, I'm the guy that made Abram rich. Don't want you building your brand as a result of this. And he's gone, no. That's it. Just, <laughs> no. We can't do anything about what my team has eaten. So we'll take that because you're not getting it back. Um, and these three guys who've got no 
you're, you're not trying to influence them, make sure they get their fair share. So his thought was, you know, look after others, but it's not about me. He recognised that there's a very, very fine line between the honour that he had showed to Melchizedek and the flattery that was being shown to him. And it's the same with us. We try and flatter God. We try and give God what we think God wants rather than just going, hey God, I trust you. I believe what you've said and I'm just going to try and live a life that's consistent with that. Let's have a look at this whole idea of honour. Honour is. Honour is that in which we put our faith. We honour those that we believe in. Honour is the acknowledgement and due recognition of another. Who they are, what they represent. That's also honour. And honour is different to obedience. Abraham, Abram, wasn't obedient to God. He believed God. What was it that God asked Abram to do? Didn't ask him, told him. I want you to leave this place... Leave your, fam- your father's family and go to the place that I will give you. So, how was Abram disobedient? He took Lot with him. I said, oh, but I've got an obligation here. I've sort of adopted him on behalf of my dead brother. So the arrangement or the obligation that Abram had with his dead brother was stronger than the instruction that was given to God, given by God to Abram. And we do that so often. We say, oh, I've got these other obligations, I've got to stick with those, rather than be obedient. And if you think that's just an Old Testament thing, the New Testament, the church in the book of Acts, does exactly the same thing. No, the church is told, go. Now, in your going, take the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. No, from Jerusalem to Samaria, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So what did the church do at the beginning? They all came to Jerusalem and stopped and just stuck there. They were given an instruction. They just didn't follow it. Did God go, that's it, I'm wiping you out? No, he just gave a little bit of persecution that caused them to be scattered. No? What did, what did God do with, with, with Lot? And we see this in the, in the preceding chapter. 
Lot and, and Abram finish up having conflict because they've both got so powerful and successful that they couldn't actually live in the same place. When you think that Abram had 318 of his own guys, you know, Lot presumably was a similar sort of size. So it's like, no, we're, uh, we're crowding this out. We're, we, we can't, the, the, the real estate can't sustain us. So we've got to, you go that way, whatever way you choose, I'll go the other. Easy. But honour is these things. Honour doesn't mean we can't let go. Sometimes we think, oh, if we're honour, we've got to stay, you know, hanging on to things. No, the Bible's really clear we should honour our father and mother. But it also says that when a man marries, he leaves his father and mother and lets go of them and clings to his wife. So honour doesn't mean you can't let go. And sometimes we think we've got to hold on. And this gets back to the detachment test that Caleb spoke about in the first week of this series. We've got to let go of stuff so that we can take on that. It doesn't mean we're dishonouring what the stuff we're letting go of. It just means we're letting go of it. No, it doesn't mean that we blindly follow. Honour is not blind. Honour is rational, logical and flows on from what we see. And honour doesn't mean we have to be perfect. No, Abram honoured Melchizedek, but he wasn't perfect. Abram honoured God, but he wasn't perfect. He just believed. And that's all God asks for us now. He doesn't ask for us to be perfect. He just asks us to believe. Believe him. Believe what he's done for us. So how do we honour God? We honour him with our time. We honour him with our talents. We honour him with our passion and energy. We honour him with our finances. And I very intentionally put that down the list. Because so often we think, oh, it's all about honouring him with our money. And we honour him with our body. We honour him with our time. If you really want to see what someone honours, have a look at their diary. Their schedule. What do they spend their time doing? That'll give you an idea of what people honour. You want to work out what people honour? Have a look at what their spending habits are. But we honour God by looking after ourselves as well. This is why I put number five in there. We honour God with our bodies by looking after ourselves. Because it really doesn't matter about the rest of it if we don't look after ourselves and we die a premature death. No. Physical exercise does profit a little bit. No. There's a statement in the Old Testament that's reinforced multiple times in the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul and all your strength. That's honour. That's honouring God. Loving him with all everything we've got. Being all in.
honour is corroded. Jesus told this wonderful illustrative story, and it's recorded in three of the Gospels, about a farmer sowing some seed. And two of the bits of seed, no, one of the, some of the seed finishes up on a footpath. He must have been a really sloppy farmer. I would have thought if you're going to sow seed, you're going to sow it carefully and not make sure that it finishes up on the footpath. But some of it he sowed in rocky ground. And if you've seen you know, the landscape of Israel, it's a lot of rocky ground. Some of it finished up amongst weeds. And the rocky ground, when it hits the wall, shrivels up and dies. So adversity becomes the enemy of honour. The seed that falls in amongst the weeds is choked by, and this is, this, is, this is the Bible's words, not mine, the cares of life, the pursuit of riches, and the pursuit of pleasure. And those things choke out the word of God in our lives, and they come against us being able to honour God. Nobody is going to honour God because it's the fun thing to do. I really enjoy honouring God. I feel so wonderful when I'm doing it. Nope. It's tears and snottiness and <laughs> coming before God and going, God, can't not Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane where he goes, if there's any possible way that this cup could be taken from me, that this could, if there's any alternative to dying on the cross, I'm open. Nope. No, I've proved my obedience to this, but no, he went one step further and he continued. And the New Living Translation in, the, in Luke's version of that, of that illustrative story talks about the fact that those seeds never grow into maturity. And I think that's a telling way of expressing it. Lack of honour and the things that crowd out honour will prevent us entering into maturity. Many people forego a relationship with God and simply settle for a deal. How many of you remember the old show, Deal or No? No deal! We don't want a relationship with God because that's scary as all get out. So we settle for a deal with him. I'll do this for you, God, as long as you do this for me. That's not honour. That's manipulation. Three thoughts for you to ponder. I'm going to allow a little bit of time. Have Jackson here on the keys will tinkle away. We look for unconditional love from God, but only offer conditional obedience in return. We're called to love God for who He is, not what we can get from Him. And that's really the, the core of what Bernard was talking about. And the third one. If God did nothing more for us than what he has already done by dying on the cross, he's already done more than we deserve. 
but we want more. So while Jackson's playing, if we can just, you know, stand, if you want to stand up, kneel down, come out the front, I'll leave it up to you. But reflect on this, those three things. No, do we want a deal from God? Or do we want a relationship with God? How do we want to, how do we want to build our relationship? Thanks, Jackson.